Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, even just, I was thinking last week, gathering together with many of you at the, the fifth Sunday evening service at Reedvale, it's a joy that we get together, to gather together as, as one body, even though different particular churches. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'd like to read, our text will be verses 14 and 15, but I'd like to start at verse 12 just for context sake. Here we have the Apostle Paul closing his letter to the Thessalonian church, and he's giving them instructions on how they are to act, and specifically, how they are to organize themselves within the church. And so as we read these, there will be several groups that he addresses. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, we'll read through verse 22. We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone, evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Would you pray with me before we come to the Lord's word? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us to wander about in the dark, but you have given us the words from your very mouth. We pray, O Lord, that you would send your spirit among us in power so that we might understand and that we might leave a changed people. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. A common scene in most households is for a parent to send one of their children to another group of the household, whether it be the other parent or whether it be other siblings. Maybe this has been your experience in your life. Maybe you've done this with your children or maybe your parents would do it with you. Sending a child with a message. And what is happening in that moment is that the parent is sending the child as a representative of themselves to a different party, to their parent or whether it be to their siblings. Asking them to do something. They're, they're carrying the will and the wishes and the desires of that parent to their siblings or to their mother or their father. And this principle is, is nothing new. We see this throughout all of Scripture. We see the Lord raising up Moses and sending him to Egypt to deliver his people out of captivity. We see God calling Israel to himself and setting them apart at Mount Sinai to be a light to the nations. God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai for the reason, for the sole purpose that he would bless them and through their obedience to him, they would be a light to the nations of God's goodness and his grace. 
But we see this, this idea of, of representation preeminently in Jesus Christ. God the Father sending God the Son into the world to be the exact imprint and impression of the Godhead. In Christ embodying the law. Christ, Christ coming and, and correcting any false notions that the Pharisees had of the law and of who God was. But even though Christ has ascended and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, this idea of representation still exists today in his church, in, in you and me. That as Christians, we are called to be Christ's representatives to a lost and a dying world. Not only in the church, but also outside of the church. So I would ask you this morning, we often think, especially in our reform circles, of representing truth. And we should represent truth. We must represent truth. But how often do you think of representing Christ's character to one another? Representing Christ's heart and his compassion to a lost and a dying world in your words and your conduct of everyday life. Well, just to back up for a moment to give a bit of a context, Paul is closing his letters to the Thessalonians, his letter to them, and he is, he's giving them instructions. Paul, is, he, he's been forced out of Thessalonica for the sake of persecution. The church told him to leave for his life's sake. And so Paul is writing to them so that he might put into order things he didn't have the time to instruct them. And so here we get this glimpse of how they're supposed to order the church. Answering the question, how is the church of Jesus Christ supposed to look? And we read it earlier, but in verses 12 and 13, Paul addresses leadership. How are leaders to act? How are elders and deacons to act within the church? And then we come to the verses that we'll consider this morning in 14 and 15, and we're instructed on how, as a body of believers, we are to interact with one another. What does that look like in day-to-day life? How are we to love one another? So what we learn from this text this morning that the Spirit is teaching us is that Christ ministers through his people by their words and conduct toward fellow Christians and toward all men. That Christ ministers through his people by their words and conduct toward fellow Christians and toward all men. And I'd like to look at this in just two points. Verse 14, our conduct toward believers, toward one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then verse 15, our words and our conduct toward all men, those outside of the church. So if you look at me in verse 14, just to refresh our minds. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Here we have before us three, three commands, three things on what we are supposed to do, our responsibility toward the person who's sitting next to you in the pew this morning. The first one is that we are to admonish and to instruct those who are unruly or wayward or undisciplined. Now, this word that is translated idle, it's a military term that literally has the, the it connotates to be out of ranks. So we think of, of a, in a military setting, someone who's out of ranks, they're out of place. They're not in the position that they were told to be. They're somewhere else, wherever that might be. Now, in the Thessalonians context, Paul addresses later in 2 Thessalonians that some of this group in the church refused to work. They believed that Christ's coming was so imminent that they decided to quit their day jobs and they became a burden to the rest of the church. They were living off the rest of the church. 
So Paul is addressing this idea that these people are not doing what they've been commanded to do. They're instead of, become, instead of being a productive member of the church and of society, instead they've become a burden to the church and to broader society. Now we may not have that same problem in our day and age in this context of people not working and becoming a burden of the church, but from this we draw the principle that what we believe has direct bearing upon how we act. The Thessalonians believe, some of the Thessalonians believed that Christ was coming so soon they stopped working. They stopped caring for the material needs of themselves and their families. And therefore, they became a burden. But also, we can bring it into our own day and age and see in our, in our lives, for instance, the big sanctity of life issue today. Notice some people do not think that life is, begins at conception. And so how does, that, how does that make them view life, babies in the womb? They view it as cheap, as being able to just being tossed away. Same thing with we can think of the Sabbath. If we do not think that the Lord has designated this day, one in seven, for us to gather together and to worship him and to, and to fellowship with his people and to come and to dwell in his presence, if we don't believe that God has set aside that day, we will treat it like every other day, and we will not rest in it and enjoy it as we should. This principle that what we believe has direct bearing upon our lives, and, and this admonition, this command that we are to instruct or to admonish those who are out of ranks, those who are idle, gives us this, this another principle that says that as Christians we have a moral responsibility toward one another. That when you see a brother or sister who is, who is straying from truth as given in God's word, there's a moral obligation to come alongside that brother or sister, lovingly, but nevertheless to come alongside that brother or sister and to show them a better way. Now pastors and elders have a primary responsibility to shepherd the people of God, but nevertheless do you see the, the responsibility that the broader congregation has toward one another? To live lives that are sanctified and holy and that are continuously being brought more and more in a line and in accord with the word of God. But in our day and age, we don't like to be instructed and admonished, do we? We don't like it. We, from whatever, we have different backgrounds and just our Western individualized culture. We like to do what we like to do and we don't want people to tell us how to do it. But what's the point of admonition and instruction? Why, why are we given this command to do this? It is not so that we can nitpick one another's lives, and it's not so that we become annoyed with one another. But the point of all, and the goal of all correction and instruction and admonishment, is restoration and growth. Restoration and growth toward one another, with one another. And that we should view every bit of false doctrine or any bit of sin in our lives as deadly, as deadly to our very souls. There's a quote by um, J.C. Ryle. He said, there are three things that are, that are deadly to a man or a woman. A little poison, a little false doctrine, and a little sin. Do we see them all equal? Do we see the heinousness and, and the, the deadliness of sin in our lives and, and in and, in and in false understanding, things that we might not see correctly. Do you see sin as, as 
deadly to the soul. And think of it in this terms, that correction always, is, always must be done out of love, and we do it because we love one another. Think of your own life. If you see one of your children or grandchildren or your, or your spouse or a friend walking towards the street, and you see a car coming, and they don't, how is your love for them going to act? What is it going to look like in that moment? It's not going to be this over-romanticized notion that our culture presses upon us all the time. But no, you're going to cry out to them. You're going to run to them so that you might snatch them from that place where they could possibly die or at least get hurt. So love does not always have this idea of over-romanticism or romantic love, but Oftentimes, love, when it is seen in the light of sin and false understanding and, and being deadly, we cry out to one another. We seek to snatch, as, as Paul says in Timothy, to snatch some out of the flames. But again, we always do it in love. We admonish and instruct because we desire to bring back those who stray. But there's two caveats to this. Two caveats to our admonition and destruction of one another. One, as we've said, it's always done in love. It's always done in love to one another because love always seeks the good of its object. Love always seeks the good of its object. And secondly, that this does not give us license to nitpick one another's lives. Earlier in Thessalonians in chapter 4, Paul told them that they need to start at home first. They need to start with themselves And we think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, to take the log out of your own eye before you seek to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But nevertheless, we engage in this out of love for one another. We have as Christians the responsibility not only to correct wrong understanding and have a moral obligation toward one another, but also to encourage one another, which is the second thing that we laid before us this morning, to encourage the faint-hearted. Now notice the tenderness here. Notice the tenderness to encourage the faint-hearted. If we were to go out into the world, how much tenderness toward the faint-hearted would you find? In our day and age, the weak of society, those who struggle are often those who are cast off from society. There's no patience there. And I would argue that because of Because of the theory of evolution coming in and the idea of survival of the fittest, there you have it. They're not they're not this idea that that if they're supposed to make it, they will. But that's not biblical teaching. That is not what's laid before us this morning. Instead, when we see one another, when we see one another struggling with something, we have an obligation to come alongside of them and to encourage them. Now, how might a believer become discouraged or faint hearted? Well, first, struggles with temptation and sin. How often is that a stumbling block for you in your life? When we wrestling with some sin, whether it be lustful thoughts, whether it be anger that you just can't seem to get under control, whether it be a lack of contentment with the things that the Lord has given to you, whether it be the treatment of your husband, your wife, or your siblings, or pride or covetousness. When we wrestle with these things and when we fall prey to them, we become discouraged and faint-hearted. We, become, we, we begin to question ourselves. Lord, if I'm really your child, why do I struggle with these things? Why, why can't you sanctify me perfectly all at once? But not, sometimes we can become discouraged, not because of our own sin or temptation, but simply because of hard life struggles, situations. 
whether it be financial struggles or whether it be things beyond our control and we begin to question the goodness of God and his providence in our life. We are to come alongside those who are burdened down with guilt or grief. And none of us here this morning are immune to this. We can become discouraged whether you are mature in the faith or whether you're a new believer. The temptation to discouragement is always there. No one is immune. But again, we don't cast these people off. We don't cast those who are hurting and afflicted off. Instead, we embrace them. Instead, we encourage them. And how do we encourage them? Well, first and foremost, we encourage them with the promises of God. We encourage them holding forth before them the graciousness of God, his goodness to us to forgive our sins. Those who are struggling with sin, we come alongside of them, we encourage them with that great promise of 1 John, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And a few verses later, that those who struggle with sin have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has bore our sins who has taken the wrath of God on our behalf. Those who are struggling with temptation, we we encourage them with the fact that we have a mediator in heaven, that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, praying for all of his children all the time. That's a marvelous thought, isn't it? To think that now, even now, as we sit here and worship, Christ is praying for his people. That he ever lives now until he comes again to intercede for his people. We also are encouraged when we are in times of temptation because Christ himself was tempted. And that since Christ was tempted in every way, he's able to sympathize with us and that we can come to him throughout any temptation, whatever it may be, and he's able to sympathize with us. And he's able to intercede on our behalf and strengthen us through his word and spirit. We come alongside encouraging one another, caring for one another, sympathizing with one another's struggles and weaknesses. Just a kind word toward one another. How many of you here this morning can attest to someone coming alongside of you and encouraging you with a kind word? And how much that strengthens your heart? How much that strengthens you and, and that points you to the grace of God. And you're able to rest, to rest in the glories of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. Not only are we called to instruct and admonish those who are idle, we are called to encourage those who are faint-hearted. But lastly, we are called to help the weak. To help or cling to the weak. Well, who are those who are spiritually weak? Among us, excuse me, who are those who are weak among us? Well, those who are spiritually weak, those who are young in the faith, or new converts, or the children among us. Those who are at, those who are, have not walked with the Lord for years and years, and so they are the prime target of the devil. They are the prime target of the evil one to come and snatch away and to trip up and try to dissuade them from following the Lord. Not only those who may be weak in the faith, but those who are backslidden. Those who are still wrestling with sins and, and are struggling to see the grace of God and are struggling to, to persevere in life because they think that their sin makes them unworthy of the Lord. Not embracing the promises of the gospel. Will we have an obligation to one another to cling to those and to hold fast to one another and those of us who are struggling in these areas? 
Now, why must the church pay close attention to those who struggle? Well, first, Romans 15 tells us that the mature in faith have an obligation toward the weak. Just as in society, the mature in society have an obligation to teach and to to help those who are the younger generation. Well, so too it is the same in the church. That those who are spiritually mature among you this morning have an obligation to those who are spiritually weak and to the, the coming generation. With the goal always to strengthen and build one another up. To strengthen and build one another up with love and compassion, clinging to one another. It's easy. It's easy for us to come down hard on people who are weak, isn't it? It's easy for us to look at them and just to think, why can't you get your act together? Why can't you just, why can't you press forward? Why must you, know, why, why must you always need a helping hand? But, but think of it in these terms. That we, we are to love as Christ has loved us. And, and one commentator gave this great illustration. He said that Christ, when he looks at his children and they're wrestling with sin. Now again, we're talking about, we're talking about born-again Christians. And when Christ looks at his people and he sees them wrestling with sin, that as they wrestle with that sin and as they struggle and strive, and even if they begin to, to lose the battle for a time, his love for them actually increases because he sees his beloved child wrestling with sin. Now that might sound very odd to us at first, but think of it in these terms. If Christ sees the sickness of sin in his beloved children, and if that sin becomes, and if that sickness increases, his love for them increases as well, to the same degree. And to put it in, in, a, in a human illustration, think of if you had a loved one who was battling some disease. You hate the disease, but you still love the loved one, your husband or your wife or your child, your friend. You hate the disease, but you love the one that does not change. The, their sickness does not change your feelings toward them. And, even, and if that sickness began to grow, your love for them would begin to grow as well. And in that same way, we are to do that with one another. That as we see one another wrestling and struggling with sin, as we cling to those who are faint-hearted and weak, that our love for them should increase when we see them struggling. And we should be in all the more prayer for them and encouraging them with the word of God. To admonish those who stray, to encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak. And then Paul gives us this Last closing bit as far as how we are to interact with one another in the church. He says this. If he wasn't practical already, now he gets very practical. He says, be patient with them all. Now why is he giving us this admonition or exhortation to patience? Because the three things above are slow in growth. Sanctification is a slow process. And that we need to forbear with one another. That we need to take a long-range view of things. That as much as we would love to be able to snap our fingers and have things change instantly, that is not how the Lord works oftentimes. The Lord wants us to cling to Him. The Lord does not want us to rely upon our own strength. Instead, to lean upon Him as He works in us by His Word and by His Spirit. We are encouraged to patience first and foremost because it is the first characteristic of biblical love. Think of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. 
Love is patient. These things take time. But our greatest exhortation to patience is Christ himself. Christ himself. How, think in your own life. Christ's patience with you. Christ's patience with you. His dealings with you. When you have strayed, how has the good shepherd come alongside of you and brought you back into the fold with loving instruction? When you were faint-hearted, how has the Lord encouraged you through his word and his spirit and oftentimes through his body, through believers, through fellow believers coming alongside one another? And how has the Lord dealt with you when you've been weak, when you are a new convert in times of discouragement? Our, our dealings with one another should reflect, should reflect Christ's own dealings with us as we seek to love one another. And do we see this? To apply this in two ways. First, are you constantly looking among one another for those who need this kind of help? Those who need to be brought back in. Those who, who need encouragement, who are faint-hearted. And those who are weak in the faith and need to be clung to. Do you constantly look around those among you for those who need help? Our pride oftentimes, many times, keeps us from asking for help. So it's imperative that we look around at one another. But secondly, and even more so, I think, do you see the privilege of being the hands and feet of Christ? Do you see the privilege of your actions making a, a monumental difference in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? And that Jesus is ministering through you to one another. That's a, that's a profound thought. To think that Christ is ministering to his people through his people. And what a great privilege it is to take part in that work. The primary aspect of the Christian life is ministering to God's people. However, if it stops there, we have not gone far enough. If our love toward men and women end at the doors of the church, we have not gone far enough. We must love all men as, as equally and in the same manner, which leads us to verse 15. Our words and our conduct, not only toward believers, but also toward all men. If you look at me at verse 15 to refresh our minds. Verse 15 says this, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So here now, the game is, is doubled in a sense. We are, it is pressed farther. It is, it is easy to love those who love you. It is hard to love those who don't love you. It is hard to love those who, who often push and kick against the Christian life. But that is exactly what we are called to this morning. First thing, we are called to not repay evil for evil. We are not to repay evil for evil. Even as blood-bought believers in Christ, this is very hard. Because what is the very first thing, what is almost our, our gut reaction to someone who slanders you, someone who deals you physical or financial or spiritual hurt. It's revenge. We oftentimes, almost, I would say most of the time, when someone, when someone hurts you, the very first reaction is to want to get even and to get back at them. Now, this does not mean we do not seek justice through its correct paths, but the point that, they're make, that, that the apostle is making here is that 
is that as Christians, we are called to something greater. We are called to something higher. We are called to be Christ-like toward our dealings, and especially when we are dealt evil. Consider Christ's words in Matthew 5. He says this, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. God desires us to turn the other cheek when we are dealt evil. And to even press it further, consider this. Consider the evil that Christ himself endured. As we are to be Christ's representatives upon earth, consider the evil that he dealt with and endured when he was here upon earth, physically. And to think of it in these terms, that your salvation, dear believer, was purchased because Jesus did not repay evil for evil. Think of the scene. Jesus is there, standing before the crowds and Pontius Pilate. He's been whipped, he's been beaten, he's bloody and bruised on behalf of his people. He has slanders and jeers coming at him from the crowds, from the nation of Israel, his very people. He has false accusations against him. They're yelling to crucify him. And he opens not his mouth. Like a sheep before his shears is silent. He did not seek to defend himself. He knew he was in the right. He knew there was no falsehood in him, in himself. But yet he endured evil for the sake of the salvation of his people. Think of the testimony of your life which pursues peace and not its own vindication. When someone deals you evil, for instead you repay with peace and goodness. The world knows nothing of that. Think of the testimony of a life that, that is so set upon being Christ-like and so set upon displaying Christ-like love and affection to the world. They don't see that in their interactions, except with Christians. Because the world is so bent upon themselves. They're so, they're so turned inward and they're so, con, con, they're so um, set upon their own desires and their, and their will and vindicating themselves. But yet we have the great privilege of showing and displaying Christ to them, not repaying evil for evil. And then we are given this contrast. If we are not to repay evil for evil, then what are we to do? But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. We're given this contrast of instead of repaying evil for evil, we are to actually seek their good. We are told to pursue what is good. This is very countercultural. In a world which only seeks to do good for itself, Christians are to seek the good of all men, even unbelievers. But it's not just that we seek to do their good when it's convenient for us. But we are to this word. To, this word "seek" it literally means to move rapidly and decisively toward an object, to hasten or to run or to press on towards it. We're not just to do good to those when it's convenient for us, but we are to seek it out, actively seek out the good of those among us. We're to do it to two groups of people. He says, first to one another, so he comes back to the church. We are to seek to do good to one another. 
And I think that he's implying that we do the first three things he told us, to admonish and instruct and to encourage and to cling to the weak. We're to seek the spiritual as well as the physical good of believers, but also we are to seek the good of everyone, which means unbelievers. To seek the good of unbelievers. Now, how do we do this? What does this mean? I think first off, that we pray for them. Do you pray for your unbelieving neighbor? Do you pray for them that they would come to Christ? Do you pray for their their good, their physical good? That they would prosper, that God would prosper their house, that they would not be in need, that God would bless their marriage, their children, their family. But secondly, we seek their good through evangelism. Because every man's highest good is reconciliation with God. Do you seek the good of your neighbor through sharing the gospel with them, through telling of the grace of God? Do you actively pursue that in your life and those to whom you meet? But finally, we seek their good simply as men and women who are made in the image of God. That because they have dignity and value and worth as men and women created in God's image, eternal beings, we seek their good. We press on towards it. In this text, we are given how the body of Christ is to minister to one another and toward all believers, and toward every man and woman, even outside of the church. We're instructed that we should love one another, and that love takes the form of correction sometimes. It takes the form of encouragement. It takes the form of clinging to one another, that we might build one another up in holiness and love as we press on in our pilgrimage to heaven but also that we are to interact with the world outside of these walls in a loving way, that we do not repay evil for evil, but instead we seek their good. We seek their good. We seek their good so that we may display Christ to them, and we seek their good so that we may win them to Christ. But what's the motivation for these things? There's some weighty things that the apostle lays before Thessalonians and the Spirit lays before us this morning. These are weighty things. These are hard things. But what is our motivation? This is not a call to moralism. This is not a call to simply be a little bit better than your neighbor or anything like that. But our motivation, I want us to allow this to fuel all of our dealings with one another. Again, consider Christ. Consider His compassion to you. Our motivation is, should be fueled by Christ's compassion and love and mercy that he has shown to you. That we do not do these things to earn God's favor. We do not earn, do these things to try to earn our salvation, but instead our compassion and love for fellow believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for the world is a response to the love and compassion that God has shown to each one of us. Do you think of it in those terms? Do you allow what God has done for you to fuel your interactions and your conduct and your words towards one another? It is a great privilege we have to be the hands and feet of Christ. It is a great privilege we have to that through our words and our conduct we might display Christ to a watching world and toward his church. So as we contemplate, as we think on these things, let's pray that the Spirit would empower us to do it, 
that we would grow in our love for Christ and then out of, our, out of that love that he has shown to us, we would then love one another. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the great love and compassion that you have shown to us in Christ. That you have shown us mercy that we can barely comprehend. But thank you, Lord, that you have revealed it to us and that you have given us your spirit that we might know it truly, even if we cannot get our arms fully around it. We pray, Lord, that you would make us a people, that you would make us a people that love one another, that would seek to do good to one another, that we would constantly be looking around for opportunities to encourage one another through our words and our conduct, seeking the good of each other. Lord, we pray that you would help us also to love the world around us, even when it is hard. We pray for boldness. We pray, Lord, for an overwhelming sense of love and compassion for those that do not know you. Lord, we pray that you would make us bold ambassadors for Christ, that we might display him before a lost and a dying world as we anticipate that great day when we will stand before you in glory. with the host of heaven. We ask all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, in response to God's word, I'd ask you to stand with me as we sing, My Jesus, I Love Thee. We'll be singing verses 1, 2, and 4.